such a good God. I don't know if you realize it, but even the, the ability to praise him, to just even worship him, even that comes from him. You know? He's just such a beautiful God. Hallelujah. Tonight, I promise to keep you not for long at all. And we just want to continue our study in the book of Hebrews. And I want to look very briefly in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And I'm going to read verse 1 through 2. And then I'll skip and probably go to verse 7. And I'll go on to maybe verse 13 or 14. And I'm going to read from the ESV version. English Standard Version. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of God. At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. I'm going to jump to verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took, let me read that again, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hallelujah. So we read in the first two verses, the author says that the point of everything we are saying, or if you like to summarize the book of Hebrews, and I love the book of Hebrews, probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. Now the point in what we're saying is this, that we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. So he says the point of everything we're saying is that we have a high priest that is what? is seated. In itself, this is a sort of contradiction because, again, you have to remember context. And we have talked about this. Pastor Bank has talked about this in 
very great length in some of the Wednesday classes that the book of Hebrews, when you read it in context, you have to understand that it was speaking primarily to Jews. Amen? And that they were coming from a place where they had a certain way that they approached God. So, for instance, they had a high priest. And so, the writer begins to say, all the things that we've been talking about hitherto, up until now, is summed up in this. That we're speaking to you about a priest, a high priest, but this high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is significant because when you read in verse 2, he says, this high priest is a minister in the holy places. So you have, contrary to how ministry was carried out during this day and time, you have a minister who was seated. So he was ministering seated. So think about it like this. Today in church, when we're preaching, very often we stand when we're preaching. So imagine if I came to church and they had a nice couch here for me and I was sitting down. You would not think that I am getting ready to preach. I mean, in fact, you would think maybe I'm getting ready to act out a drama or a skit or something like that. So a high priest, when he's ministering, does not sit down. He's way too busy to be seated, not when he's ministering, okay? So immediately, in the minds of the people to who this book was addressed, there's already a real contradiction because here is a high priest who is ministering seated. That's the first contradiction I wanted to see. You have a high priest who is ministering seated. The other thing is this particular high priest, the Bible says that he's seated where? At the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? So the implication there is that usually the right hand of a throne is a place of, that's where you, is a place of authority. That's where you sit when you are a co-ruler, so to speak. So here is what's going on then. You not only have a high priest who is ministering, seated, but you also have a king. And you say, well, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because, again, leading up to this time, a king could not be a priest. And a priest could not be a king. So you're looking at, it seems, a new day because suddenly this high priest was not only ministering seated, he was also a king. But before we proceed into talking some more about this, I just want to provoke you a little bit and ask you a question that I'm not necessarily even looking for an answer to because we've got to move fairly rapidly. And the question is as follows. Do you suppose that religion can and is a cause of conflicts and wars? Uh, I know that there will be many answers if we attempt to ask for answers from you all. 
So I'm just going to say, based on the research that I have done, and all the readings I have done of history and human development and so forth and so on, the answer in my mind is unquestionably yes. That religion, in fact, does cause conflict and wars. No doubt about it. I mean, historically speaking, that's the case. I mean, you may argue that some religion do so more than another and that some religion used to do so and don't do so and that if people who cause wars and conflict by religion are people who really don't even understand the religion that they're in and so forth. Okay, so those are explanations. The simple question is, does it cause it? And the answer is a yes. So, I'm submitting to you that Jesus Christ came not with a new religion, not with a better religion, but that he in fact came, listen to me, Jesus Christ, in fact, came to abolish completely religion. You say, really? Yes. Well, let's examine religion and what it is for a second. So, there is very common to almost every religion. You find at least two components. There might be others, but there are two that I want us to take a look at tonight. And the first is that in every religion, whether you're talking Islam, whether you're talking whatever religion that you're talking about, they will have these two major components to it. And the first is that there is a big transcendental figure who cannot be explained away by scientific or natural causes. Okay? All religion assume that position. That's the first thing. That there is a being that is bigger than what your mind can really scientifically or logically explain. The second component to every religion you're going to find is that that there is a gap between this being and everyone who is religiously trying to follow the being. That he is all the way there and that we're all the way here. And you'll find, whether you're talking about Muhammad or, what, or the prophets, in fact, in the Old Testament, that every religion is seeking to do one thing, to bridge the gap between the big, mighty, transcendent figure and humanity. That's, in fact, what every religion is doing. And various religions have various different ways of accomplishing this. So some will say, you do this by sacrifices, ablutions, um, uh, and so forth and so on, and even prayer. If you want to talk about Christianity as a religion. Amen? Jesus Christ came, though, to specifically, completely, and absolutely do away with religion. And if you take nothing away from what I'm talking about tonight, that's what I want you to be able to see. He not only came, not only did he come to take away religion, I believe that Jesus Christ came to give us what I like to call a radical new covenant relationship with God. Because it says here very clearly in verse, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So look at how that old covenant operated. God says that because the children of Israel failed in upholding their part of the covenant, what did God say he did? He said, specifically, I showed no concern for them. Amen? I know how many of you were here when we were looking at the Old and New um, Testament and we had shown how in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and in verse 1, the scripture says very clearly that if you do all these commandments, then all these blessings will follow you. You all remember that? And we have suggested that, well, in a natural mind, if someone tells you that if you do everything, you will get 100%, you will suppose that if you didn't do everything, you'll be graded according to the scale of 100. So if you did everything, you got 100. If you didn't do everything, you got something that you didn't do less 100. So if you did 10% less, you get what? You get 90. If you did 40% less, you got what? Yeah, right? That's the way we think that any, anyone who is a teacher or if we have a relationship or if we have an arrangement, that's the way it should work, right? Well, not in the Old Testament. Because as you read further down in Deuteronomy 25, 28, and 15, it says, if you do not all these commandments, what will happen? What did it say will happen? What's the negative? Curses will follow you. That's exactly what it says. It's really important that we get this. And I honestly don't think that we do yet. And I want to spend a little bit of time here. Because to me, this is really the crux of the matter. So many of us have come to Christianity with this mindset where the old covenant and the new covenant is mixed for us. We were not really taught very clearly what it means to be in the new covenant. And so you go to a church where they're reading the Old Testament and the New Covenant. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, you know, I was raised in that environment myself. Where there was not a real clarity. There was no New Testament for me when I was in church began from Matthew chapter 1. That was New Covenant. It was really a page of the Bible that separated the Old and the New Covenant. That's what I understood the New Covenant to be. The truth of the matter is even Matthew is in the Old Testament is the old covenant. Why is that the case? Because for the new to be ratified, Jesus had to die, be buried, and he had to rise again from the dead. Hallelujah! I don't know what I'm going to have to do about this Wednesday service because I really want all of us who come to really get the most out of it. And I know that it's a very tiring day, that we've done a lot of work, and that we're tired and so forth and so on, but it's such a few of us that are here, and the class is so small and so intimate that if some of us are dozing off, really, it really just... And, but I know that we're all tired. I, I understand that. I really honestly do. But I also want us to get the most out of it. I just don't want to do this for the sake of where we're in a Wednesday class. You know, let's just knock it out of the park, and then we can all go home, and we can say that we've done what we came here to do, and so forth and so on. Amen? Amen. Glory to the name of Jesus. So, um, I hope that woke everybody up. 
Okay. So that's how the Old Testament worked. Unlike anything and everything you're used to, it says that if you did everything, you will get 100%. But it says if you missed one, you get curses. That's a very uneven arrangement, if you ask me. Okay? And if you understood that, you should immediately say, no, I don't want any part of this. Why would you? Are you serious? I have to do all of the laws. I have to fulfill every law every, every day in order to get all of the blessings. What if I just want some of the blessings? It's all or nothing. Exactly right. So that's the way the old one was set up. So do we understand that? It's all or nothing arrangement in the old covenant. So God says that because in the old covenant, continually people were not able to access the blessings that God has in stock for us. How many of you know that God is in the business of blessing people? God wants to bless you tonight, I'm telling you. More than you want to be blessed, I promise you. If we will really just truly understand and grab hold of this truth, that God is by far more eager to bless you than you want to be blessed. Do you know what I just said? Do you believe it? I said God is more eager to bless you than you yourself want to be blessed. Before you think of it, I'm telling you, your God already intends to do it for you. He has perfected all that concerns you. I didn't say that. That's from the Bible. He says he has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Why? So that by these things, we might escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. I I just think that we really honestly don't believe this. And I think part of why we don't believe it is because, again, we're coming from this place where this thing is mixed. You know? For 10, 15, 20 years, you've heard that, well, God will bless you if you do this. That's religion. That's how religion is set up. And in fact, you had religion in the Old Testament. That's what we did in the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. That's religion. Jesus Christ coming specifically came to abolish and completely do away with religion as you know it. Religion as defined by you do this and you will get this. You do good, you get good. You do not good. It's not even that you do bad. There's a very slight difference. You do good, you get good. You do not good, you get curses. But Jesus Christ came to totally, absolutely, I am so grateful to Jesus. I know how flawed I am. I know how I try, even in a 24-hour cycle, and can't do the things that I have promised myself that I will do. So I said religion do cause, religions do cause conflict. Why? Here is why religions cause conflict. When I feel like I am doing all I'm supposed to do and that Sister Grace is not doing all she's supposed to do, I immediately begin to feel superior to her. But of course, I'm looking at this flawed woman. When they say fast, I know she doesn't fast. We live in the same house. You know, I see how she's spending money on very useless things and she's buying gold and diamonds and all these things and I'm a very pious 
very religious man. I'm giving to God and I'm in the service of God and I'm coming to church every day. And so I'm doing all the do's and she's not doing any of the things that she's supposed to be doing, right? So here's what really happens. If you really just push that argument a little further, God helps Sister Grace if she gets blessed. Because there's a real problem now. She is not supposed to be blessed. If, to worsen the situation, if I'm not getting blessed, I'm doing all the right things. I'm in church all the time. I'm paying my tithe. I want to examine for a minute. With you. Just come with me. But I want to examine and present to you that Jesus Christ in bringing the gospel to us brought a completely different, a radical approach to God. It's not, it's not different. It's not, that it is, it's not a different religion. It's not a better religion. It's a complete, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that hitherto was never experienced. There is a holy God. That's religion. And man is way too sinful to approach him, let alone have a relationship with him. Therefore, the only way you get to see this God is through some rules and regulations. And when you do all the rules, he blesses you. And when you do not the rules, he punishes you. That's the way religion was set up. But Jesus Christ came to abolish all of that. Amen? So remember that I said that there are certain barriers that are set between God and man, supposedly, and that we need a bridge for this mediation, and that many different religions will approach this differently, some by sacrifices, some say live a good life, by incantation, by prayer, and so forth and so on. But let's look in verse, uh, verse 8. Well, actually, let me go back to verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. So God says he found a fault with the first covenant. What is the fault that was with the first covenant? The fault with the first covenant was that men were really incapable of living up to their own bargain or to their own part of the bargain. They were, not, they were incapable of doing all the things that they were supposed to do. Yeah, they couldn't follow the rules. They couldn't follow. So they were constantly needing a high priest and someone to come today to help them do the uh, sacrifice for whatever sin it is that they have committed and so forth. And so God says that he found fault with this first operating system, if you want to call it that, because it was just not working. There's no point in saying that you and I, we have a relationship or we have a business deal if the operating system that is binding our relationship together is not working for both of us, then we're never going to get the outcome that we're looking for in the first place. So God says that he's doing away with this first covenant because it wasn't working and it was not working because even though God was doing his part, the followers and the people who were supposedly worshiping God were not able to do their parts. Amen? And so Jesus Christ came, and I want to begin to examine for a few minutes, this new relationship that Jesus Christ has brought, brought us. And there are just three things that I want you to be able to see tonight and then we'll wrap it up and we'll close. There are three things that I believe that Jesus Christ came to, to, 
to, to, to, to buy for us or to make available for us in the new covenant. And I just want to quickly go through that. The first is intimacy. Intimacy. Hmm. Help me, Holy Spirit. If you're a married couple and about the only thing that unites you as a spouse to your spouse is a certificate that you signed that says that you're married, then you really don't have a marriage. Even for me, I've been married about 20 years. But I'll tell you, maybe it's in the last five years or the last six, seven years that I'm coming to understand this truth. The way I entered marriage was as follows. I'm the man. I have certain responsibilities. You are the woman. You have certain responsibilities. And I have even preached that to my wife from the Bible before. You know, the man is the head of the home. And if you want to be culturally relevant, my job is to bring money to the house, right? And your job will be to make sure that there's food on the table, that the children are taken care of. and So So it was a relationship which basically said, I will do all of my part to the extent that you fulfill all of your role and all of your part as a wife. The extent to which I will be a faithful, loyal husband to you is the degree to which you are a faithful, loyal wife to me. I know we don't say it like that. But that's how we deal. In this new covenant, in this new relationship that Jesus Christ has brought us, he's saying that our intimacy with God, that he has bought us and purchased us, basically says, let me read it to you. Verse 10. No, verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the, out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Okay, so look at this. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now, look at this. This is sweet. I love this. I love this. I was talking to my wife tonight about a friend of ours who, well, let's just say that, you know, she just, she made some mistakes and, we're, and, and she's really feeling bad about making these mistakes. And so we're talking to her and counseling her. And, and I just remember, and I said, you know what? It doesn't even matter that you made a mistake. I mean, this is the, this is the quality of the God that we serve. Not that it doesn't matter. There are consequences for it. So that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that in spite, you can boldly go to God and say, yes, God, I acknowledge that I, I misstepped. You know, I didn't do right. I didn't pay my tithe. Yes. In spite of that, look what it says. I will put my laws in their minds. Who's going to put their laws in, his, in their minds? Who is it on? Who is this on? Who is taking the responsibility here? Okay. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. What kind of ridiculous promise is this? This is the promise God makes and he puts the responsibility of this happening on himself. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their... Glory to God. 
I will be merciful toward the what? In the ESV version, it says toward the iniquities. God completely places the faithfulness responsibility not on you. Because he knows you cannot be faithful. So he says, even when you're not faithful, I cannot deny myself. I'm going to be faithful. So what God really did in cutting a new covenant was, as typified by the Old Testament, he basically stood on both sides of this new covenant that he caught. So he really caught a covenant with himself. On your behalf. So the reason God is putting the responsibility on himself is, is that in this new covenant, unlike the old, where on the one side there was brother Greg and myself, and on the other side there was God, in this new covenant there was God on the left, and guess who was on the right? Glory to God. So he says, I cannot, what? I'm, I'm not going to be faithful to myself. And you will see how God is able to do that because if you really want to make a legal argument, you will say, well, I mean, there's God on both sides. There's not Simon and there's no Greg there. I'm going to show you in a sec how there's Greg and Simon on the one side. So the first thing I want you to see in this new covenant is that, <clears throat> that Jesus purchased for us intimacy with God. It's not intimacy that is based on if you do this. It's not God if you do this for me. Because that's what religion says again. God if you bless me. In fact, there are many, many scriptures in the Old Testament. Where people actually put out fleece for God. You all remember that? If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. If you make sure this happens, I will do this for you, God. In this new relationship that we have with God. You are saying to God, God, I'm going to worship you. All the days of my life, irrespective of what happens. Because I love you, because you have first loved me. It does not matter if I pray and the prayer comes to be answered, at least in my understanding. Whether it comes to be answered or not, I will praise you nonetheless. If the fig trees do not blossom, yet I will praise him. If there is no money in my pocket... I will go about rejoicing knowing that his thoughts toward me, they're of good. And that even this is working for my good. That's intimacy. My children are secured in the fact that they know. Even if they get into trouble, all they have to do is just come home. Once they arrive at home, that their father will use his strength, his influence, his power, and everything else he has to protect them. That boy, the prodigal son, he went away at don't you want, did God not have the power to stop him from going? But he took that which belonged to himself and then he went away. And the Bible says when he came to his senses, he came back. And when he came back, God didn't say, okay, you know what, let's go over the things you've done. But the reason he was able to come back to his senses or the way he came back to his senses, he was saying, what am I doing here? I know the love of my father. The love of the father pulled him in. That's Intimacy. He knows he's acted badly. He knows that he's done what he's not supposed to do. But he knows that if he would just make it back home, that the father will embrace him. I don't know what you're going through tonight or maybe even the last few weeks or in the last few months. I'm just here to let you know that there is such an intimate place that Jesus has purchased for us in God. That we're no longer in this tabernacle where there's the altar called the holy place and the holiest of all. That in this new relationship with God, there's just one place. 
There's just God. Bam. That's it. If you call on him, he will show up. And if you don't see him, don't think that he's not there. He is right there with you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Intimacy. You have intimacy with God. That's the first thing you have in this new covenant. The second thing that you have in this new covenant is, I love this. Equality. As against, if you like, I, can't, I couldn't find a better word, so I called it equality instead of classicism. Classism. Classism, right? It'll be classism. Okay. Equality instead of classism. What do I mean by that? Equality instead of classism. I just spoke about the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, which was the symbol of how, of, of worship of God, there were all kind of barriers in the tabernacle. There's, first of all, it was separated into three compartments. Isn't, it, isn't that right? There was the outer court, there was the holy place, and then there was the holiest of all, right? So in this tabernacle, there's all kinds of categories of people that were allowed to go to certain places or not. You could not go into the holiest of all, for instance, no matter who you were, except that you were the high priest. And that, once a year, was when he entered in. So there was such a class structure. There was such a natural, not a natural, an unnatural classism. Yes, of course, there was. There had to be. There were places that women couldn't go. Because women, and you know that there are people in church today who are saying that there are certain things that women should not do, even today. Again, they're talking about the old, old covenant. They're not talking about the new covenant because that does not exist, not in the new covenant. There is no divide. There is no separation. We're all the same in Christ Jesus. Let me quickly go to the third one. No superiority. No inferiority. Amen? We're going to end with this one. And I really want to spend a minute here. I've really been trying to push the idea in this church of community versus individualism. You know, and, and I, I don't think I'm really doing a good job of it because I'm not seeing what I love to see. I mean, it's happening to some extent. Don't get me wrong. It is happening. Um, yeah, well, let me just leave it at that. What struck me about living in community is that what Jesus did for us is again, if you read verse 10, verse 11, you know, he keeps talking about the people. He keeps talking, he says, I put my laws in, 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 not in your mind, in their minds. Uh, they shall be my people, I'll be their God. Uh, you can see and you can sense that God is talking about a people, about a community of people. In fact, his first covenant was also to a people or to a community, to the children of Israel. Amen? I really believe, and I'm not saying thus yet the Lord. This is really just my, my own conjecture, my own personal conjecture. But I believe that what God did in the beginning was that he made a world and then he created 
a people to live in it. Because we saw that in the, in, the, in the story of creation, we saw that God made the earth in the first six days, so in the first five days, so and then in the sixth day, He made man. And I, lo- I personally love that story. I think it's a beautiful story that God made all the infrastructural needs that we're gonna, that man is gonna have. You know, made the garden, made it beautiful, the trees and everything in it, and prepped it, and it was all beautiful. There was enough air. There was the right amount of oxygen. There were there, 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 was, there was marine life. There was, you know, I mean, all the things that's just necessary for, for human flourishing. So, in the beginning, hear me now, and, and, and this is really the point that I want to make tonight. So, I really want you to hear me. And I want you to go home and just chew on this. So, God made the earth and he put a people in it. He, he prepared the place. And it was nice and it was beautiful and he put man in it. I think in Christ Jesus, I really do believe that what God is doing in this end time is reversing that order. I believe that God is preparing a people first. And then when we are fully prepared and ready and we understand community, God is making for you and I a new earth and a new heaven. Glory to That's why you didn't die and went to heaven after you got born again. Because God is unlike when in the beginning he made the heavens and the earth and then the Bible says he gave man dominion and he said be fruitful, multiply and replenish it. In this case, he made you, well in the beginning you know he made you in the likeness of God, right? But in this case, Jesus is now bonded to me. I am nailed with Jesus Christ on the cross. And therefore, if I believe him, I'm risen with him in the power of his resurrection. This is the people. So God not, now not only has just one begotten son, he has many children in Christ Jesus now. And for all these children, God is making you a glorious place, preparing for you. A future that your mind couldn't possibly comprehend. So Paul is able to admonish and encourage us and say, brothers, my sisters, whatever you're going through right now, the sufferings of this moment, whatever pain, whatever lack, whatever you, you, you think you ought to have that you don't have, do not be despair. Because this is not how it ends. God is prepping you and God is preparing me for that new place, for that new Jerusalem so that the sufferings of this moment that you may be going through, Paul says they're not even worthy. They're not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed in you and I. I wonder what that is. If you want to know what that is, just look at what you're going through right now and tell yourself that even this is working for my good. Even this is preparing me for glory. Even this is going to work out for my good because I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. And the Bible promises you all things, everything is working together for your good because you've been called according to his purpose. Hallelujah. So Jesus purchased for you with God intimacy. 
Jesus took away class in this new covenant. You can approach God directly. You have complete full access now to God. No priest needs to lead you to God. But God also wants you to realize you can't come to this place by yourself. It's for a people that he's building a new heaven and a new earth. Not just for you, not just for me. He's building us a new place. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Would you just rise to your feet with me as we sing this song in closing? Hallelujah to you, Lord God. We love you. We bless your name. Thank you, Jesus. I'm waiting for my chorister to go on there so that I don't mess it up. Oh, you probably need a microphone. Uh, there's a, there are other microphones there. Mm. I hope you know this song, but I want you to sing it as a prayer unto God this evening as we wrap this up. Draw me close to you. You know the song, right? Never let, let me, me go. go. I lay it all down again. I lay it all down again. again. To hear you say I'm your friend. To, to hear, hear you say that, that I'm your, your friend. friend. You're my desire. You, you are my desire. desire. No one else will do. No, no one, one else will do. Because nothing else can take your place. Because nothing else can take your place. To feel the warmth of your embrace. To, to feel, feel the, the warmth, warmth of, of your embrace. Help me find a way. Help me, Lord. Help me find the way. And bring me back to you. Distracted, 
by the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and all the little things that so easily distract us. Remind us, O oh God, ever so gently, that outside of you, there is nothing. There is only you. Remind us, O oh God, that you have purchased for us intimacy and that we can come before Jesus, before our Heavenly Father. No matter what we have done, no matter how dirty we look to ourselves, no matter what any man says about us, that we can always run to you and that you are ever ready to embrace us and that your arms are forever opened. Remind us, O oh God, that we need to have a title to be accepted in you. Remind us that our future is bright and glorious and full of things that we not even dare imagine. Remind us that you're all we want, you're all we need. That we'll forsake all and pursue love and pursue you, our maker, our God. That our lives will be that much richer and fuller in you. We bless your name tonight. We thank you. That the words we've heard tonight will not stand in judgment against us. But that will be doers of that which we have heard. That will bring you praise and glory. We worship you and bless you. In Jesus name. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday. Remember to be here for prayer. And also invite someone please on Sunday.